what happens when historians sit down to answer questions submitted by their loyal listeners? Find out on this special edition episode of Footnoting History. everyone, and welcome to a special edition episode of Footnoting History. I'm Kristen, one of our co-producers. And I'm Christine, the other co-producer. And today, we're doing our first ever Q&A episode. You may remember that for a few weeks, we solicited you for questions for this episode. We talked about it at the front of episodes we released, and we posted about it on social media. Well, we reviewed all of your submissions, and we think we've put together a pretty good episode, which is only because you all asked us some fun questions. Even though you'll only be hearing our voices in this episode, all of us, that's Christine, myself, Lucy, Josh, and Samantha, we all contributed answers. We're doing it this way because we thought it might be overwhelming for everyone to answer everything and for all of us to be talking at once. As it is, it'll probably be longer than a standard episode, but we're okay with that because we really wanted to take the time to go through these questions. And if you'd like to hear your version of the episode in the more usual time frame, well, that's what the speed and a half setting is for. Absolutely. So let's get started. But please know that we are thankful for every one of you who sent us something. Um, do you want to read the first question or should I? Well, um, I did the intro, so I think you should read the, the first question, and I'll give the first answers. How's that? that? Works for me. Okay, so our first question is from Heather. Hello, Heather. Yes, hello, Heather. Thank you for being the first person to submit a question to us, which is why I've made sure that yours is the first answered. That made sense to me. Heather's question has to do with being a historian. It is, what is the most common incorrect belief people have about your main history concentration, and how did it come to be, quote, common knowledge? I like that, and I'm glad that I wasn't the person who officially answered it, because no one, no one needs to hear me prattle on about how Napoleon wasn't short yet <laughs> again. <laughs> but you but you made sure to get it in there. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. No, no, no. I get it. <laughs> it happens to all of us. I'm not sure if every listener knows this, but all five of our current hosts trained primarily as medievalists. So both answers we have to this question are about the Middle Ages. Samantha, who recently did a fantastic episode on Lady Godiva, said... I researched the history of policing in the Middle Ages, and the number one misconception is that there was no policing in the Middle Ages, or that knights just kind of kept order. I think this belief comes out of the Enlightenment-era characterization of the Middle Ages as a time of chaos and disorder. This idea still lingers, and when people think of order in this period, they largely think of knights. But for day-to-day -day things, there was a systematic method of policing that initially relied largely on community policing, which is increasingly being touted as a potential solution to issues with modern police departments. These methods were gradually replaced as elected officials, constables, beadles, sergeants, etc., 
were increasingly assigned to policing duties, though admittedly it wasn't really until the 17th century that we start seeing the emergence of professional paid career police. I remember when she was doing her dissertation, um, I didn't know much about medieval policing, but it was really interesting to learn about it. And of course, you know, the world thinks the Middle Ages was all chaos and darkness, right? So that makes sense that thinking there was no form of policing would happen. Yeah, I mean, I didn't realize the extent of it either. Sam told me. Josh had an interesting answer, too. I'm going to read that one. Um, And if anyone out there listened to his episodes on events like Prester John, the mystery man of medieval (laughs) Christianity, uh, you won't be surprised that it has to do with religion. Mm Mm-hmm. Josh told us, it's pretty hard to answer this question. I study the papacy and how it tried to enforce orthodoxy, meaning correct belief, in places outside of Europe in the 14th century. And by outside of Europe, I mostly mean West Asia and Far East Asia. My dissertation explored, for example, two new archdioceses that the papacy created in 1307 and in 1318. The first was called Kaubali, and it was centered in what is now Beijing, China. Pope Clement V created this archdiocese after a guy named John Montagor Vino, who worked in that region. He wrote to the Pope and told him about all of the conversations he had secured and all of the churches that he had built. In 1318, after the suggestion of a Dominican friar named William Adam, Pope John XXII created the Archdiocese in Sultania, which is in modern-day Iran. Both of these places are super interesting to me because they were spaces in which a variety of faiths existed. Of course, we can talk about Islam, Christianity, and Judaism sharing that space, but what's more interesting to me is that there were different varieties of Christianity occupying those spaces. And it gets even more interesting when a Buddhist or two shows up because the Christian writers I study have absolutely no idea what to do with them. (laughs) So anyway, there's not really a misconception because 99.9% of people who I've talked to, even experts in medieval history, have no idea that these archdioceses existed or that the papacy took direct action to try and police the orthodoxy in these places. And this is to say nothing of the crusading actions men of the church planned. One pope even created his own navy. So, wait, what you're telling me here really is that I need to message Josh and ask him why he's never done an episode about a pope creating a navy. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) there's a lot interesting in what he just said, uh, (laughs) but I want to know about the pope's navy too. Uh, And I really want to know if there were any specialty Pope Navy tattoos. So, Josh, let us know. Yeah, I'm going to text him, like, as soon as we're done recording and demand this episode. Like, we can put it down on the listener request sheet, like, right? (laughs) That is is absolutely where we should go. Oh, okay. So, speaking of listener requests, if you're out there and you have a request, please always let us know. In fact... We got an email recently from, let me check, Marietta. Hello, Marietta. Uh, Marietta wrote us saying, here's someone you might want to consider for a podcast, Peggy O'Neill Eaton. Yes, Peggy O'Neill is a is a good one. Good call, Marietta. Yes, for those unfamiliar with her, but not to give away too much in case we do the topic, Peggy was married to a member of the cabinet of U.S. President Andrew Jackson in the late 1820s, um, I think 1829, 
the other wives of cabinet members uh, didn't like her or her marriage and they wouldn't accept her, uh, resulting in an infamous event in U.S. history called the Petticoat Affair. Uh, I think it is something that would absolutely be awesome to cover and make a real fascinating episode. When we receive an email like this, and again, thank you, Marietta, we think about who it would be best suited to. After all, we have multiple hosts. Uh, if there's someone really specific, like if you send something about medicine, Kristen and Lucy specialize in that. We'll show it to them directly. If not, we'll add the topic to our general listener suggestions list, and our hosts have the option to claim it whenever they want to. If someone knows about the area or topic already, it's likely to get done faster. And if it's brand new to all of us, then it might take a little longer to get done because whoever picks it will have to do the research from the ground up instead of expanding upon past studies. Uh, so, so that's how it works. We love listener suggestions, um, but sometimes it takes a little time to get to them. Lucy's episode um, coming out later this month is from that list. So was her John D episode a while ago. We definitely do try to integrate listener suggested topics. So always feel free to drop us a line about it. Actually, that's a good segue into a question we got from our listener, Anne. Hello, Anne. Um, which had to do with how we choose topics, okay? So Anne's question was two-pronged. How do you choose your topics? Do you ever think you'll run out of ideas? God, I hope not. And probably not. Uh, there's just so much out there, but, you know, writer's block is real. Mm -hmm. So if, if that happens, uh, we will be begging our listeners for ideas. That is exactly what would happen. But as for how we do it now, I can only speak for myself, but I don't think I'll ever run out of ideas. I run our Twitter account, and because of it, I am always looking for new historical facts to tweet, and those often lead to me coming up with topics to cover. Um, I remember my episode about King Gustav III of Sweden specifically came from doing research for an on this day type of tweet. Also, life just gives it to me sometimes. <laughs> like my Elizabeth Siddle episode, she was an artist and model married to pre-Raphaelite painter Dante Gabriel Rossetti, uh, came from my deep love of the British miniseries Desperate Romantics. Biographies are my favorite, so as long as there are people in the past I haven't covered yet, I'll be good to go. Samantha seems to agree with you. She said that she also doesn't think she will run out of topics because, quote, Honestly, sometimes I have struggled to come up with topics because of an overabundance of ideas and a devotion to making sure that I only select topics that I have the capacity to thoroughly research. There are a million things that are interesting and worthy of study, and it is so difficult to settle on just one. I currently have a list of about 20 topics that I want to do at some point in the future, so hmm. no. I doubt I'll be stopping anytime soon. That makes sense to me. And I love hearing she has 20 topics. <laughs> I think it's part of the benefit of having a podcast where we have no theme. Uh, we can draw from literally anywhere and anything and any time without restriction, really. But most of the time it comes down to what interests us, which is actually another <laughs> segue. Look at me. I'm segueing <laughs> all over the place here. Kristen, why don't you read us the question we got from Raymond? I think it's a topic that is of interest to both you and Lucy. It is. Okay, Raymond. Hello, Raymond. Raymond asked us, was Robin Hood a fictitious character? And oh, that is a question about a topic I love. But I know Lucy <laughs> gave us a great answer for it. So 
I'll let you read that first before I give mine, since I definitely have some thoughts about those. Good idea. Then we can segue again, because we have another specific question I know you and Lucy actually will have thoughts about. Uh, but first, regarding Robin Hood and whether or not he is real. Lucy said, and I always associate him with Lucy because, and I hope she's fine with me saying this, I once saw an absolutely adorable picture of little her in a Robin Hood costume <laughs> that made my heart happy. Uh, but I digress. She said, sadly, yes, I love him very much. And he was a formative influence on my becoming a medievalist, but he was not a real person. Arguably, he's one of the most influential medieval people, despite being fictitious. He comes into being in the later Middle Ages, in times of expanding control by landlords. So for historians, he provides a look at political discontent and economic struggle in late medieval England. They also provide a window on popular piety. In one of the oldest ballads, Robin's devotion to the Virgin Mary drives him to attend church at great personal risk, and he only escapes the clutches of the Sheriff of Nottingham with Little John's help. Unlike Little John, Maid Marian only turns up in the early modern period. But Robin Hood remains iconically medieval. For the romantic poet John Keats, Robin's love of Sherwood was a way to protest industrialization. With the help of Walter Scott, Robin gets relocated to 12th century England during Richard's captivity and the regency of Prince John, where he stayed ever since. He's fought Nazi-coded Normans in 1930s Hollywood and starred in films protesting the futility of the Vietnam War in the 1970s. So fictitious though he is, he continues to be irresistibly compelling as a figure of contemporary social criticism as well as an inhabitant of the imagined Middle Ages. That is such a good answer, which is exactly what I expected from Lucy on this topic. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, of course, I also have thoughts on Robin Hood. So <laughs> I will add to this that there have been some really imaginative ways of trying to find a person who was the real Robin Hood, um, who he could have been based on. And I'm doing air quotes, but only Christine can see them. So you're welcome, there. Christine. Uh, <laughs> there are some judicial records that some people have interpreted as being about a real Robin Hood. Let me preface the rest of this with probably not. Um, but here's the deal. There is a record of the Assizes at York from July 25th, 1225, that recorded the fines handed down at Michaelmas, which is a feast day at the end of September, generally an end of harvest celebration time and one big marker in the medieval calendar year. People are paying their taxes and their servants' salaries, and it's a time when the courts would meet. And these Michaelmas fines were recorded in the Exchequer, which is the Central Finance Bureau of England. And assizes were court sessions in England. So in this assize record from York, there is a record of a fine for 32 shillings, six pence for the chattels or the stuff of one Robin Hood, H-O-D, fugitive. The account was carried forward into the following year when they gave him the name Hobhood, and they indicate that he had been a tenant of the Archbishop of York. Hob was a familiar form of Robert, according to the Middle English Dictionary. It was also a, a name for just the common classes. There are other people with the name Hood, but they're not fugitives. So maybe that's him? 
Uh, there is another note in the King's Remembrancer's Memoranda role. Um, say that five times fast. I'm not. <laughs> um, it's another exchequer account, and it's from Easter of 1262 that mentions the pardoning of the Prior of Sandalford for seizing without warrant the chattels of one William Robehood, R-O-B-E-H-O-D, fugitive. The Prior apparently just took this guy's stuff when he went missing and, and didn't stand for trial, and the Prior was supposed to wait until the King gave him the go-ahead, but he didn't. Turned out okay for the prior, though. Historians cross-reference this with the role of the justices of the Eyre in Berkshire in 1261, and this record talks about a criminal gang being outlawed, including one William, son of Robert Lefebvre, whose shadows were seized without warrant by the prior of Sandalford. So this William is probably William Robehood, and somebody just changed this guy's name in the records. It's all kind of convoluted, and it's a bit of a stretch. Neither of these guys seems to have had any kind of spectacular criminal career. So if they are Robin Hood, the original one was kind of a mediocre outlaw and doesn't perhaps really warrant a, a legend. But <laughs> uh, really, there, there are lots of Robin Hoods in the records because real people did often take his name because of the stories. And, and there are lots of little Johns, too. What most historians think this all really tells us is that the legend of, of Robin Hood was circulating in the early part of the 1200s, so long before it actually got written down. So that's the tea, Raymond. Uh, wow. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome from both of you. Uh, my, my Robin Hood knowledge is limited to having a classmate do his BA thesis on the topic, <laughs> seeing several of the films and visiting Nottingham. Which was a great experience, and if you, dear listeners, ever go, you must take a picture with the Robin Hood statue that I assume is still there, especially if your name is Raymond. Yes. <laughs> uh, do we have another question set up, or, or do you want me to keep talking about, about Robin Hood? Yes. Should we change the order of questions I have here to try and segue again and keep up our trend, or do we want to go in the order I have them listed and stray from the segue path? Let's, uh, let's be wild and, and stray from the path. Okay, here's one I have an answer for, so you read it. Oh, this is another good one. I forgot we had this one. All of these questions were, by the way, so fun for us to read. Uh, this one comes from Ellie. Hi, Ellie. And it is, do you think that you have to like an historical person or era in order to enjoy studying it? I have such huge thoughts on this. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to share Josh's first, because maybe by the time I finish that, I will give an answer that isn't a stream of consciousness. <laughs> um, so Josh first. Josh said, absolutely not. People ask me all the time if I'd ever travel back to the Middle Ages, and the answer is always no. I'd never want to visit. I love modern medicine and modern conveniences way too much. I also wouldn't want to hang out with any of the popes of the Middle Ages either. They seem like real jerks most of the time. <laughs> I can't imagine going to a punk rock show with Innocent III and having a good time. Actually, maybe I'd take him to a guar show and turn his reactions into viral TikToks. He'd be so mad and his vestments would get covered in all that, quote, fluid they shoot out during <laughs> their shows. 
I googled side note Christine here I googled guar after he mentioned this to me and let's just say <laughs> I can't unsee it anyway <laughs> I was just lol until I fell over from stomach cramps there are a lot of super interesting people who do super interesting things but at the end of the day are absolutely awful people comes with the territory of being human I suppose I am not going to Google what you just said, so don't. Thank you. <laughs> I probably, I probably would have. Um, and but so I'm going to just, I'm going to take a moment here and, and and imagine Innocent the Third as a as a viral TikToker, <laughs> probably trying to sell me on some baked pasta oh dish gosh. with uh, with feta. But um, oh gosh. Okay. Okay, I'm good. Um, now I'm going to hear your answer. Oh, it won't top that one. <laughs> I can't. I can't even begin to think of what that would look like, other than that it wouldn't be pretty. But you're right. I, I also agree with Josh. Um, I definitely say that I love Henry II and Richard III, but does that mean I approve of them? Uh, no. It, it means reading about them is engaging and interesting. But I do kind of like some things that they did. You know, I find them fascinating enough to read about. Right. Better examples are probably that I studied the French Revolution and definitely don't agree with executing all those people. Uh, oh, and I, I studied Bonnie and Clyde for a bit, but in no world do I approve of what they did or think that they were great people. Much of what they and other historical figures you know, did was appalling. And most listeners out there know that I love the Bonapartes so much. But like, so much. Do I, so much. But do I agree with everything any of them did? Certainly not. I think for me... Often when I say I love this person slash era, what I mean is really I do not live in the same era, so I can look at it and be intrigued by the actions of people in it and the cultures they lived in and always want to know more. You know, it's a, it's a good question, Ellie, because I've often heard people think if you study someone, you have to like them as people. And that's just really not true. Yeah, so. it, it definitely is not. No. I do. I do a lot of work um, with the history of, of religion in the medieval West and the history of witchcraft persecutions. And it's a lot of people writing from the perspective of religious intolerance. And it's a lot of inquisitors. And mm. I gotta say, I do not like most of the people that I read about. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that lets me off the hook from trying to understand them. Sometimes you do come across someone that you'd like to have met, but even then, you don't have to agree with their decisions. It can be out of curiosity. Mm -hmm. And uh, speaking of curiosity... I thought you were done segueing. It gives us a good one, though. This is my last time, I promise. Speaking of curiosity, <laughs> Mateo, hello, Mateo, says, All of you specialize in medieval history. How have you found exploring other periods of history? If you could go back in time and specialize in something else, what do you think it would be? Hmm. This is hard because I generally do like it all or some aspect of, of all of it. But I think mm -hmm. I would do early modern culinary history. I just, I find the history of food and what people ate and how it tastes and techniques, how they developed. I find these things to be really, really interesting. I think that too, for the, for the medieval world, um, but sometimes there isn't just a ton of culinary evidence. Um, you know, there's not a lot of evidence for what ordinary people were cooking, and there are tons of, of recipe collections by ordinary people starting around the 1600s, but then a lot in the 1700s and the 1800s. And reading all of those would just be a really fascinating day at work for me. I love your culinary interests. Patrons have benefited from this because we've shared some recipes you've translated in our Patreon exclusive newsletter, which, yes, that is a plug. 
Yeah. And I'm actually in the very, very beginning stages of coming up with something else related to historical food for Patreon. So that'll be fun too. Yes, it will. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, but we do have an answer from Josh for this one too. Uh, but you should read it because I just read his last, his last one. It would just be fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Josh said, to be completely honest, I used to resent having to study other periods of history. When I was in my MA and PhD program, maybe one of my advisors would offer a seminar in medieval history a semester, but only maybe. So I got stuck having to take seminars in other fields, but especially modern world history. I swear to Cleo herself that if I had to hear one more conversation about the flow of silver to China, my head was going to explode. I love world history as a field, but who boy, uh, I hope I did that justice, Josh, <laughs> but who boy does a lot of it rely on economic history, and that's a great way to put me to sleep. Though, as Christine can tell you, it doesn't take much to get me to fall asleep in random places and at random times. So it's just true, like little known fact, to take a nap you didn't plan on is to Josh, as in I meant to get some work done, but then I joshed on the couch. Instead, please make that a thing. <laughs> I did not know that, but that is awesome. Little did I know there is an official name for all of my you unofficial naps. Anyway, he continued. <laughs> my attitude changed when I had to start teaching the U.S. and world history surveys for my job. My teaching style relies a lot on enthusiasm, and if I couldn't find ways to get excited for these histories, but especially U.S. history, I wouldn't last long in the classroom. If you've listened to my episodes, you've probably learned that I like weird religious stuff. And now, having taught U.S. history for six years, I've come to grips with being fascinated with American Christianity. So if I could go back, I'd either study the Second Great Awakening and Reform in the 1830s and the emergence of what we now call Evangelical Christianity in the 1920s or Evangelical Christianity in the 1990s. If you don't know this about me, here it is. I am a survivor of the Columbine High School shooting on April 20th, 1999. I was a senior at the time and was at the school when the shooting happened. I got out quickly, mercifully, and was uninjured. Some of my friends weren't so lucky. In the days that followed the shooting, many of the area churches swam around a lot of us like sharks. It was super gross. Part of me wants to write a history of those days, but I feel like I'm way too close to do it well. That and the volatile politics that surround evangelical Christianity keep me away from doing the 1990s. I'm much more comfortable studying medieval history. Dead people don't generally get angry. Uh, yeah, he's right about that. I mean, I completely understand not wanting to write about something that you were too close to and also sticking with something where people who were involved in it probably won't come after you if they don't like what you say. Yeah, totally agree. We have two questions here that are somewhat related. First, Ishan, hello Ishan, asked, what was your favorite episode you ever did? And then Haddon, hi Haddon, asked, are there any episodes you've done that you wish you had done differently slash think would be very different if you had done them now slash would like to change? Okay, well, I can answer Haddon's question. Um, I'd redo my first episode, which is about King Henry II and uh, the English going to Ireland in the 12th century. When we launched, uh, I aimed for a tone that came across a lot more playful than it does now. And we kept things very short uh, back then. If I were to do that topic now, I'd expand it significantly. 
Um, looking at our notes here, Lucy also answered that question. She said, and I can hear her saying this in my head. Um, <laughs> she said, if I were to redo King Arthur's Christmas, I would add more historical context, I think, in addition to the discussion of medieval Arthurian literature. Also, if I were to redo it now, I would have the chance to discuss Dev Patel and Sean Harris in The Green Knight, a deeply weird film which I really <laughs> enjoyed. I, for one, love when we tie pop culture into things. That's my last edition about the pop culture stuff, um, but it's true. Regarding Ishan's question, Lucy, who is the only host to be with us continually since 2013, aside from myself, so has a lot of past episodes, uh, she said of her favorite... This is so hard to choose, but I have a special soft spot for my Sherlock Holmes episode and for the two-hander I did with Liz about queer women in golden age detective fiction. Because I spend a lot of time thinking and reading about Sherlock Holmes and queer women in golden age detective fiction, and as a medievalist, where else am I going to get the chance to talk about them? Getting the chance to do so is one of the things that makes footnoting history so much fun. Meanwhile, Samantha... Uh, who was with us originally and took a break to finish her PhD and is now back and slaying it, uh, said, wow, what a challenging question. We all choose topics because they're things that we are interested in or love to begin with. But I think I would have to say that my favorite to research has been my Godiva episode. I had not looked at Anglo-Saxon history in some time, and I found myself diving back into the incredibly intricate turmoil from that period once again, even if most of my research did not end up making it into the episode. It felt renewing in a way that I needed at that moment in my life. Sam's answer is great to me, um, because it shows just how much we can still love episodes. It's not like we burn through our favorite topics at the start. We're always finding new great things that move us. Yeah, that, that, is, that is true. We only have a few uh, questions left. Um, which which one should we do first? Uh, uh, that one. That one there. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Sarah asks, what animals have influenced history? Ooh. Well, there have been a few footnoting history episodes on animals. Um, one that I think about a lot personally is Christina's episode on getting diphtheria medicines to this remote town in Alaska. Like all the time I think about that and those heroic dogs. Right now I'm, um, I'm reading a book called Legions of Pigs by Jamie Kreiner, which first of all is, is just, it's an amazing title. Mm -hmm. I am, I am really particular about the condition of my books and my first copy arrived a little damaged. And so I had to return it. And let's just say there was a, a conversation <laughs> with, uh, with the person working the returns desk at Whole Foods. But <laughs> it's so interesting. Um, it's about how the cultivation of the pig influenced life in the early medieval West. People adjusted their lives and, and they based where they lived on these animals and they craft legislation around them and pigs become this religious metaphor in Christianity. And she looks at all kinds of, of stuff to tell the story, um, written sources and, and archaeology and, and stuff like that. Um, and for me, I, I don't do too much early medieval stuff. And so this was really interesting to me. And it's a way of, of telling a really good story about ordinary people um and for a time period that doesn't often have a lot of written stuff um because of pigs 
Those pigs are just, they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Sam, Sam also has a nice answer. She told us so many animals. My first instinct is to mention pigs. <laughs> I've talked about them in my classes for years and I'm excited to read Kreiner's book. Look at this ringing endorsement for both of you. <laughs> Sam said, you could look at horses and the advantage they presented for the people who managed to ride them. The introduction of the first stirrup, for example, is no little thing. As someone who studies East Anglia, I also feel the need to give a shout out to sheep whose wool transformed the English economy mm. in the latter half of the Middle Ages. Uh, now, in addition to the whole Pope's Navy thing, I need to add a request <laughs> for you and Sam to do an episode about pigs. But, you know, not right now, not right this minute, because right now we have a question from Charlotte. Hello, Charlotte. Charlotte wants to know our favorite historical places that we have visited and which ones we would like to visit. Uh, Lucy and Josh have answered this question for us. So who's do you want to read? Um, I've, I've got Josh's right in, in front of me, so I'll, okay. I'll read his first. He said, I'm going to take the easy road here, but I genuinely mean it. I love, love, love Rome. I've been twice and both times were magical. I made my first pilgrimage to the Eternal City with a couple of friends, and we went as tourists. Getting to see all of these places, which I had only read about in books, was indescribably cool. I remember walking into the forum for the first time and trying to keep my jaw up. I probably cried like a million times on that trip uh, because it was so overwhelming to me in a good way, of course. The second time I went to Rome was for dissertation research, which meant having the incredible privilege of studying at the Vatican for about a week. I spent hours and hours in both the Apostolic Archive, better known as the Secret Archives, and the Apostolic Library. It was honestly a dream come true, even if the Secret Archives aren't that secret and less visually exciting than you'd think. The reading room was easily the most plain reading room of all the reading rooms I visited in Europe. The Apostolic Library is way prettier and generally has prettier manuscripts too. In my spare time, I just wandered around Rome and got lost. As much as one can get lost with an iPhone and a sense of direction, some have called a superpower. It's me. I call it my superpower. <laughs> Humility. <laughs> uh, I love Josh. Um, <laughs> He continues, it was one of the most blissful weeks of my life. I'll never forget it. As for places I'd love to travel, take me to Ethiopia. Like, take me there now. Have you ever had Ethiopian food? Oh my goodness, it's some of the best food I've ever eaten. I am going to second Josh on this one. Mm -hmm. Ethiopian food is excellent. Um, Josh says, um, I will sing the praises of Burberry Spice for longer than a Richard Wagner opera. And don't get me started on the Lalibella. Um, if you've seen the churches of Lalibella, Google them now. I'd also love to spend time in India, Iran, Iraq, Greece, Armenia, Peru, <laughs> New Zealand, Morocco, Tunisia, Kenya, Ghana, Mali, Egypt, China, Japan, and Korea. If any of you want to buy me a round-the-world plane ticket, I won't say no. <laughs> <laughs> Josh's answer is everywhere. <laughs> but also, I love Kenya, and I'm going to say, having been to that particular stop on his list, that it's a great one. Um, Lucy's answer is a little more succinct. <laughs> uh, she <laughs> stops short of everywhere in the world. Um, she went with 
This is a really hard question to answer for me, partly because I'm overthinking what it means to visit. I was a visiting student at Oxford in undergrad, and I did and do adore that city. It's one of my favorite places in the world, and I've gone grocery shopping on the site where medieval parliaments were held, attended Sunday service in a vast medieval church, and ignored sublime 17th century architecture because of being stressed about essays. I've also gone back there as often as I can, uh, a habit I plan to keep up. About a decade ago, I lived for a year in Mines and grew very attached to the modern city on top of the medieval one I was studying. Then there's Rome, two times mentioned, which is indescribably wonderful. As for travel goals, I'd love to visit the architectural wonders of India. I realize that's a whole subcontinent and possibly therefore cheating, but I fantasize about a grand tour that would let me see the Ghats and Vijayanagar in the south and sites of Mughal power and Sufi piety in the north. Sorry if I mispronounced anything there, I tried. Also, I would eat my weight in all the regional cuisines and it would be great. I'd be happy to join both of them on these dream trips, as long as I can make pit stops in, like, Singapore and Australia, which are two of the top places on my travel list. Although my number one historical travel dream site is Hortense de Beauharnais' former home, Arenenberg, in Switzerland, which will surprise zero people. What will also surprise zero people is how much Kristen loves this next question. Gina. Hello, Gina. Gina wrote us, I've been watching the HBO show Our Flag Means Death about Steed Bonnet, and I was wondering, what's up with Steed Bonnet and Blackbeard? I do love this. <laughs> and I do love that my Steed Bonnet episode has gained a little extra interest now that there is a comedy drama about him. But to answer your question, Gina, I genuinely do not know what was up with Steed Bonnet and Blackbeard. Bummer. I have thought about this a lot, like a lot, a lot. I completely understand why Blackbeard was interested in Steed, in his ship and his crew. And maybe he had to do some convincing of Steed that entailed turning on the charm and using that famous Blackbeard charisma. But I do not have a good explanation as to why Blackbeard was so indulgent with Steed after he got that ship and that crew. I mean, he let Steed just cruise along with him. He's allowed to bring his books and he's just strolling around on the deck in his morning <laughs> coat. And that is just, that is not the picture I had in my head about Blackbeard. And it generally does not line up with Blackbeard's reputation in the sources either. And so I just, I don't know, but you know, I have some ideas I think there was a, a genuine fondness there that maybe may have entailed some attraction between the two. I have zero evidence for this, but I really can't think of another reason why. And like, you know, why not? I mean, Steed had this debonair, sophisticated gentleman thing going on and Blackbeard was this tough, masterful pirate. And yeah, I watch that show. I, I am watching that show. <laughs> It does make me sad that those two crazy kids couldn't work it out. But, you know, I mean, maybe this is one of those few instances where I, I won't be mad if the if the TV oh. version diverges from history. <laughs> Lucy's our other pirate enthusiast. Like, you two have a lot of overlapping interests. I'm realizing <laughs> she agreed. Uh, she said, uh, you know, why not? And this is a classic place where TV or any sort of creative media 
can do different things with source material than historians responsibly can. TV writers and historians alike are interpreting the past, but we, as historians, have a professional and ethical obligation to the surviving records and the realities they represent in ways TV writers don't. So hmm. in this particular case, all we can say is, yeah, that's curious. Maybe there was an opposites attract situation. Maybe Steed had information or resources that were valuable to Blackbeard in some way. It's obvious that doing the pirate equivalent of an internship <laughs> with Edward Teach, not that that was a real thing, would have been valuable to Steed. And we know that historically, some pirates did team up and sail together for periods of time, even if they didn't co-captain. As I discussed in a very early Footnoting History episode, we do have thorough and fascinating evidence for pirate crews as multiracial, and pirate ships as places where queer relationships of multiple kinds could and did thrive. As for the rest of it, yeah, the TV show features Victorian children's literature and contemporary pop culture references and all manner of impossible shenanigans alongside, shall we say, a creative <laughs> evocation of an Atlantic world where wealth was generated by plantation labor, quote-unquote respectability, however exploitative, was signaled through consumer goods like marmalade and teacups, and pirate celebrity was both significant and double-edged. So yeah, bring on season two. Yeah, bring on season two. I still have to watch season one. Do and, it. Do I it. Know, it's going to be tonight. After I finish Peaky Blinders, that'll be next. <laughs> and also, bring on our last question. I can't believe we're at the end. I've really enjoyed this. It kind of went faster than I, you know, you didn't know how it was going to go, but it went really well. I <laughs> uh, Look, guys, not that I thought no, it was so bad. No, this has been fun. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Not only seeing these awesome questions, but, you know, reading our colleagues' answers has been fun. I like learning their thoughts along with all of you who are listening. Well, the last question is for us. <gasps> it's from Noam. Hello, Noam. Uh, and it's about the podcast in, in general. Noam asks, why don't you guys put out more episodes? I love listening, but wish you guys released episodes every week. Okay. So this is a question we've gotten a few times from listeners over the years. And I'm glad you asked it when we're doing a Q&A so that we can bring it out and answer it publicly. Uh, I always love it because it means you like us. Yeah. But then I get sad because I can't <laughs> promise we will increase our output. Uh, when Footnoting History first started, we released episodes every week. We also had about twice the number of hosts, and it was... A lot. I mean, it was a true monster to try and manage. If one person was late, we would have a huge problem because we didn't even have that much of a lead time. So, yeah, we eventually realized that a smaller team and episodes every other week worked better. Uh, if we had kept up the original schedule, I think we would have burnt out really fast. Yeah. It is because, Noam, we will die. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we we very much appreciate this sentiment and, and thank you so much for listening and for looking forward to our episodes. But one of the downsides of having professionally trained historians write in, record and produce Footnoting Histories episodes is we have a lot of other stuff we're doing too. Mm -hmm. We are writing and producing other historical content. A lot of us teach in universities and we're all writing other pieces for publication. So if anyone wants to help us take over the world and be wealthy enough to not need to do those other things, I think we're all listening. Yeah. <laughs> speaking as speaking as the audio editor, I can tell you it takes me a glacial 
amount of time to (laughs) to get through. I'm trying and I'm getting better, but it, it, it takes me a long time to get through the raw audio and master it for release. Also speaking for myself, um, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that this is true for all footnoting history hosts. There is a lot of perfectionism and mm-hmm. high standards in both the, the research and the writing and mm-hmm. the recording. And so most of our episodes are at least two months in the making. Mm. We'd rather give you quality over quantity, but the good news is that since we've been around for like years, we have a bit of a backlog of episodes for you to listen to. And if you'd like more footnoting history content, you can also support us on Patreon and get our newsletter. It's really fun. And if enough people support us on Patreon, we can expand more. So, you know, Tell your friends. Mm-hmm. Like and, and subscribe. I know, right? Share us around. Leave us a nice review on iTunes. We love yes. that. Or leave us a comment on any topic anywhere ever. We'll be excited no matter where we hear from you. It makes our days. But on yes. that note, I think we're done. I guess we are. I'm a little sad because that was fun. <laughs> right? It was fun. It was fun. <laughs> we should we should yes. do this again. Dear listeners, if you want us to do this again sometime, let us know. Pop over to footnotinghistory.com and click on the contact page to do so. It'll be on the top. Or just email us directly at footnotinghistory at gmail.com. We cannot thank you enough for listening to us this long and for all your fabulous questions. We really loved reading each and every one and hope our answers met your expectations. As we mentioned earlier, in two weeks, we are back with a regular style episode and then we continue on with new episodes through the end of the year, like usual. If you send us a question and we didn't get to it here, you should have an email from us with an answer. And if you don't have that, then please let us know because our wires just must have gotten crossed somehow. Mm-hmm. Thank you to everyone, and always feel free to reach out to us um, via email, like Christine said. And until next time, no matter what, remember, the best stories are in the footnotes. Oh gosh, I will stop it now.